It's October 25, 1764, in Weymouth, Massachusetts. A small gathering of family and friends watches a portly, balding, 28-year-old Harvard-educated bridegroom stands across from his petite, brown-haired, brown-eyed bride of just 19. She's the daughter of a minister who just so happens to be standing before them officiating this wedding, albeit begrudgingly. That's because the minister was part of a parental coup that withheld the blessings of this young couple's marriage, forcing them to postpone their wedding day for nearly three years. A postponement caused by the bride's aristocratic and, well, snobbish family, because the man who's been courting their daughter these past few years is just some crass, wannabe country lawyer, and maybe worst of all, the son of a small-time farmer, thus from middle-class stock. In his sermon at the wedding, the minister preaches for the occasion based on the text from the book of Luke, which states, John came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, he hath the devil. Oh, did I forget to mention the groom's name is John? This apparent not-so-subtle dig in his sermon is clear indication that it could be many years before John will officially garner his father-in-law's respect. But one day in the not-so-distant future, respect is exactly what John will get. So for now, the minister can only watch as the young newlyweds ride off into the sunset in the direction of their new home. And to a love story that includes a 54-year partnership, five children, witness to a revolution, a war, and the birth of a nation. I'm Kevin. I've been happily married and in love with my wife for going on 10 years now. And I love telling real life stories. So I decided to combine these two worlds and create something new that will celebrate love stories like mine. A podcast which highlights what I think are the most moving, most fascinating, and most memorable love stories of all time. Stories that not only teach us about love, but also about ourselves. This next episode goes way back to document one of America's first and most historic love stories, that of founding father and second president, John Adams, and his first lady in every way, Abigail. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give it a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. And don't forget to like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. Today's episode is brought to you by amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. And if you're interested in creating your own great love story, schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast for special discounts. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the world's greatest real-life love stories. John and Abigail Adams are arguably America's first power couple. John is one of America's founding fathers, its first vice president, as well as its second president. There have been countless books written about him, many documentary films made, 
and even an HBO miniseries that documents the significance and contributions of his amazing life. And at a time in history when a woman's place is often in the home and to be seen, not heard, Abigail is pretty much an outlier. To give you an idea who we're dealing with here, when John's ambition catapults him to the greatest office in the land, Abigail soon joins him in the presidential residence. Her influence over her husband becomes so widely known and accepted that political critics and rivals often refer to her as Mrs. President. Behind her back, of course. Together, John and Abigail help shape the future of America, but do it without any scandals. The birth of six children, only three of which will actually survive to adulthood, and while spending at least 15 years of their marriage apart. The path that leads to this historic partnership begins with the birth of John Adams on October 30th, 1735, on his family's farm in Braintree, Massachusetts. The eldest of three children, John is an extremely bright child, but one who tends to walk to the beat of his own drum. As a young boy, John loves the outdoors, frequently skipping school to swim or hunt or fish. And when he does choose to attend, sometimes he would even bring his flintlock shotgun to the schoolhouse so he could hunt along the way. Young John has simple aspirations in life, and that includes becoming a farmer. But his father, a farmer himself, who also dabbles in shoemaking and local politics, would have none of that. John is going to school, he's gonna study hard, and make something of his life. The obedient son does what he's told, so he begins to hit the books. So much so, that at the age of 16, he gets a partial scholarship to the first and most prestigious university in America, Harvard College, which incidentally, had only about 100 students in total at the time. Upon graduation, John goes against his father's wishes to become a minister and chooses a career in law. This despite the fact that at the time, being a lawyer is not the respected career choice it is today. Around this time in his diary, he writes this about the life path he has chosen. I will rouse up my mind and fix my attention. I will stand collected within myself and think upon what I read and what I see. I will strive with all my soul to be something more than persons who have had less advantages than myself. In a nutshell, John knows he's had more financial and educational opportunities than most colonists at this time. So he's going to stay focused and make sure he doesn't blow the leg up he's been given to have a successful and productive life. In 1759, while in the midst of spending almost all of his free time building up his fledgling legal career, a friend invites John to accompany him to the house of a young woman he's courting. Although the real reason for the invite might be the fact that John, still very much single and looking for love, has a chance to meet the woman's two other marriage-age sisters. The middle child of these three sisters is one Abigail Smith. Abigail is born on November 22, 1744, in Weymouth, Massachusetts. She is a precocious, 
and sickly child. And like many young girls in this place and time, Abigail is pushed to learn domestic skills, such as sewing and fine needlework, but receives no formal education. Of the unfortunate lack of interest in empowering the female mind at the time, Abigail would later write this, I never was sent to any school. Female education in the best families went no further than writing and arithmetic. In some few and rare instances, music and dancing. It was fashionable to ridicule female learning. But luckily for Abigail, her family has a massive library filled with books from around the world, which allows her to educate herself on the works of great authors like Shakespeare, Milton, and Pope. In addition, her mother and grandmother are both women of some knowledge, so do their best to homeschool Abigail and her two sisters. To combat her lack of a formal education, Abigail sets out to learn multiple languages and make sure she's politically informed as well as articulate in the news of the day. When John first meets Abigail on that fateful day in 1759, there's real hope for a love connection. But alas, it's not meant to be. Most likely due to the fact that Abigail is just 15, combined with a nine-year age gap between her and John. But at a social gathering two years later in 1761, 26-year-old John realizes that the now 17-year-old has matured in their time apart and sees her through a different lens. He now pegs her as someone different, someone special. John would later lay out an array of reasons for his attraction to the young teenager he would court with all his might. He would say, she was a constant feast, tender, feeling, sensible, friendly, a friend, not an imprudent, not an indelicate, not a disagreeable word of action, prudent, soft, sensible, obliging, active. When apart, John longed for her presence, writing to her that he missed her fair complexion, her crimson blushes, and her million charms and graces. Throw in the fact that she's outspoken, consistently cheerful, with an insatiable curiosity of the world, and this young aspiring lawyer is hooked. His courtship includes many visits to her family home, where John brings her all types of books to read, in order to feed her constant desire to learn. They'd also bond on the long walks they'd take together, where they're free to discuss scholarly topics such as poetry, religion, human nature, and the matters that would soon lead America on a path to revolution. For her part, Abigail finds John to be super intelligent, warm, and someone who will treat her as an equal, allowing her to speak her mind. John and Abigail would have loved to have gotten married immediately, but at the insistence of Abigail's parents, who felt she was marrying someone beneath her, they're forced to hold off on walking down the aisle for three years. After their wedding day, when they officially become the Adams family, John continues to try to build up his struggling law practice from scratch. This requires him to travel all over New England using the fastest and most efficient mode of transportation at the time, a horse. 
While John rides off to work for long stretches at a time, Abigail takes the reins of their 40-acre farm, as well as the finances, the cooking, the cleaning, and most of the child-rearing. Their firstborn is a girl, also named Abigail, whom they will call Nabby. Over the next 12 years, Abigail would give birth five more times, though sadly, their third child would pass away at just two years old, and their sixth is stillborn. Life for the Adams clan changes dramatically on March 5, 1770, when British soldiers kill several American colonists in an event known as the Boston Massacre. John signs on not as a prosecutor, but as a defense lawyer for the British soldiers. When he aptly and impartially defends them, even winning an acquittal for many of the accused, his star as a legal mind begins to rise, as do the sons and daughters of the American Revolution. So in 1774, John is chosen by the legislature as one of five delegates to the first Continental Congress in Philadelphia. He is on his way to becoming one of the founding fathers of the new United States of America. But this foray into government will launch him into an existence of constant work and even more life-altering and relationship-killing international travel. Over the next two decades, John would spend almost all of his time away from his wife and family. It's safe to say that during their time apart, and probably even when he's briefly home, Abigail has her hands full. Not only is she the sole parental figure for five children, but she also supervises the planting and harvesting of their land, hires workers, oversees tenants who rent property from them, purchases additional lands, and even sells items John sends back from Europe. One footnote about farm life for these two. Many farmers in this time in history had slaves to work their farms, including Abigail's own father. But both John and Abigail believe that slavery is evil. In fact, of the first 12 U.S. presidents, only two never owned slaves. John Adams and his son, John Quincy Adams, America's sixth president. Abigail especially believes that everyone, black, white, men, or women, should be equal. To prove this, she even employs free blacks for labor on the farm, despite this being an otherwise avoidable expense. Now, even though the two are often hundreds, if not thousands of miles apart, and live in an era with no internet, no phone, not even the telegraph, John and Abigail do manage to stay connected. In large part because of the letters they write to one another. And oh, do these two write letters. Of those written between 1762 and 1801, over 1,100 are still around today. That's right, and these are just the ones that survived. We can only imagine how many were lost at sea or misplaced or even stolen. But John and Abigail don't just write letters to stay connected. They use them to talk, as if the letters were literal representatives of their own voices. On one particular day, on March 7, 1777, while John is with the Continental Congress in Philadelphia and Abigail is at their farm in Braintree, Mass., the couple exchange a total of five letters. 
John writes three, and he receives two in just that one day. The content of all their letters ranges from political and military strategy, to household updates, to family health, to offers of solicited or even unsolicited advice. But the most poignant ones, the ones that really help educate us about their relationship and how they feel about each other, are the love letters. Before we get to the content of the letters themselves, I think it's important to understand that during his lifetime, John Adams is known to almost everyone in the outside world to be cold, pugnacious, and, well, a bit conceited, actually. But when it comes to his dealings with Abigail, he's anything but those things. He's a totally different person. In fact, these two are so, how shall I put it, so goo-goo-gaga over each other at times. They even refer to one another by pet names in most of the letters. John is known as Lysander. Lysander, by the way, was a Spartan general who embodied the epitome of strength, was admirable, and also dynamic. No gray area in how he thinks of himself here. And Abigail, well, she had a few pet names. Before they were married, she was Diana, who was actually the Roman goddess of the moon. Then came Portia, who was the heroine in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. But to John, he often referred to her as, wait for it, Miss Adorable. That's right, one of the founding fathers of the United States of America calls his wife Miss Adorable. That is adorable. Here's an excerpt from one of the love letters John wrote on October 4th, 1762, while courting young Abigail. Dear Miss Adorable, by the same token that the bearer hereof, J.A., John Adams, sat up with you last night, I hereby order you to give him as many kisses and as many hours of your company after nine o'clock as he pleases to demand and charge them to my account. Now, I don't have a degree in 18th century literature, but what I think he's saying here is, I miss you very much and I want to kiss you, but I can't because we're not together, so can you please bank some kisses for me and I'll cash them in later when I see you. In another letter, written on April 28, 1776, he writes, Is there no way for two friendly souls to converse together, although the bodies are 400 miles off? Yes, by letter. But I want a better communication. I want to hear you think, to see your thoughts. The conclusion of your letter makes my heart throb, more than a cannonade would. Or how about this one? John wrote just a month before his wedding. My dear Diana, Oh, my dear girl, I thank heaven that another fortnight will restore you to me after so long a separation. My soul and my body have both been thrown into disorder by your absence. And a month or two more would make me the most insufferable cynic in the world. But you have always softened and warmed my heart shall restore my benevolence as well as my health and tranquility of mind. Believe me, now and ever your faithful, Lysander. Wow, that is some good stuff and very unexpected writing from a future president of the United States. I mean, can you imagine Bill writing something like that to Hillary or Donald to Melania? No way, I don't think so. 
on December 23, 1782, 20 years after they meet in her father's home and with John away in Europe, Abigail unveils her deepest feelings towards her one and only Lysander. My dearest friend, should I draw you the picture of my heart? It would be what I hope you still would love. I look back to the early days of our acquaintance and friendship, as to the days of love and innocence, with an affection heightened and improved by time, nor have the dreary years of absence in the smallest degree effaced my mind the image of the dear untitled man whom I gave my heart. Again, my simple translation here, she feels the same way now as she did when they first met. And although John and Abigail were simply practicing the only means of long-distance communication available at the time, it seems they may have perfected the art of love letter writing without even knowing it. According to Yale psychologist Robert Sternberg's theory of love, the ideal love letter should include content relevant to love's three basic components, intimacy, passion, and commitment. And there's no question that these letters possess all three and become key to their relationship and their ability to stay connected over long distances and long stretches of separation. What is being written about in these letters is so raw and so real that at one point John even writes to a friend saying that if anyone ever got a hold of all of his letters, it would be the end of him. It isn't until John retires in 1801 that he gathers up all these letters they wrote and begins to archive them for himself and for generations to come. But while they're alive, very few know how bonded these two really are. To most friends and family in the area, Abigail is just another stay-at-farm mom. But when it comes to her husband's career, she's really a trusted advisor. She's truly John's right-hand man and is often tasked with editing his speeches, his legal documents, and business correspondence. On one occasion, while John's in Philadelphia hammering out America's new government, he stands up and tells his contemporaries in Congress how much help he's actually had from Abigail in this process. He even goes so far as to read excerpts from her letters to a bunch of guys who I am sure have absolutely no interest in hearing what his wife has to say. But this is how much John loves and respects his wife. One particular letter, dated March 31, 1776, proves just how much Abigail speaks her mind when it comes to John's career. She famously writes, Remember the ladies, and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. A few months later in August, she would expound on this woman's rights issue by writing John, If we mean to have heroes, statesmen, and philosophers, we should have learned women. The world perhaps would laugh at me and accuse me of vanity, but you, I know, have a mind too enlarged and liberal to disregard the sentiment. Of course, the Founding Fathers didn't exactly do much for women's rights in 1776, but still, Abigail is able to voice her message for women's rights well before it's really in vogue. And one might think that the passion and love that these two show each other 
might wane over time. But that just doesn't seem to be the case here. A good example of this comes on their 18th wedding anniversary in 1782 when the two are yet again separated. Abigail writes, Look at the date of this letter and tell me, what are the thoughts which arise in your mind? Do you not recollect that 18 years have run their annual circuit since we pledged our mutual faith to each other and the hymeneal torch was lighted at the altar of love? Yet it burns with unabating fervor. Old ocean has not quenched it, nor old time smothered it in the bosom of Portia. Smothered it in the bosom of Portia. I'm not sure, but I have a feeling that is the equivalent of 1782 sexting. A few years later, after the writing of this letter, John's political career begins to take off, and Abigail finally gets to experience life off the farm, and more importantly, to be in the company of the man she loves. On July 21st, 1784, Abigail, along with daughter Nabby, follow John to Paris and then on to London to watch him become America's first ambassador to Great Britain. John works a lot during this time, and Abigail doesn't have a great love for the people of Europe, but they do get to attend the theater and stroll arm in arm in the English gardens from time to time. And most importantly, they're together. But it's in 1788 when John's tireless work ethic truly pays off and he's catapulted to the second and most useless office in the land, vice president. Over the next five years, the Adamses would live in both New York and Philadelphia, which was our capital before DC. Then in 1797, when John becomes America's second president, Abigail becomes our second first lady. Initially, when John takes over as president, Abigail remains back at the farm to handle everything there. But eventually, John writes to her and says that he just can't bear the trials of office without her. So she gets the affairs of the farm in order and takes what is probably an hour flight now and probably a three-day trip then from Braintree, Massachusetts to Philly. Abigail continues to support John in many ways, including some really proactive ones. That's because John is a very polarizing and bombastic president. He's often attacked by the press and other detractors, so Abigail would sometimes write public letters in support of his policies and agendas. When that doesn't work, she even writes angry letters to the newspaper editors about their unpleasant articles to get them to make changes or retractions. She becomes such a prominent person in the political theater that often those who want to influence John first seek Abigail's support. But life changes dramatically for these two when John is narrowly defeated in the 1800 presidential election by his friend and adversary, Thomas Jefferson. Abigail is actually content that John is out of politics and they can get their lives back. Plus, for the first time in their entire marriage, she gets her husband all to herself. In March of 1801, John and Abigail officially move back to their Massachusetts home, which they call Peacefield, and settle into family farm life. He is 65, she is 56. Retirement is a wonderful period for John and Abigail. They help raise their many grandchildren, play with their dogs, and enjoy simpler, more private times together. 
The two are still also avid readers and often seen reading in their private library that has amassed a collection of a whopping 3,500 books. That is until that fateful day in 1818 when Abigail passes away at the age of 73 from typhoid fever. Her last words to the husband who sits dutifully at her bedside are, Do not grieve, my friend, my dearest friend. I am ready to go. And John, it will not be long. Eight years later, at the age of 90, and just a year into their only surviving child, John Quincy's presidency, John dies of heart failure. The date is July 4th, 1826. What's so amazing about this day is that it's the 50th anniversary of the adoption of the Declaration of Independence, the day America officially becomes America. Also, when John passes away, his final words are, Thomas Jefferson still survives. But unbeknownst to John, Jefferson passed away five hours earlier at his home in Monticello. Stranger still, as the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia is tolling, marking the deaths of these former presidents, it cracks. A crack that remains on the bell to this day. In the end, John and Abigail Adams spend 54 loving and fruitful years together. Over two centuries later, their love story still stands out. Not just because of what these two incredible people meant to the creation of the United States of America, but also because of what they meant to each other. Relationships and marriages like John's and Abigail's are the kind we can all learn from, that we can all strive to achieve. That's because it was founded on the precepts that all quality long-term partnerships should have. Trust, communication, honesty, respect, devotion, the pursuit of love, and of course, equality for all. How do we get, how do we get so brave? How do we get, how do we get so brave? Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give us a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. Or like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. And if you're a smart, successful single who's looking to find your forever relationship and want to create your own great love story, go to amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. Amy's programs help you break unhealthy dating beliefs, attitudes, and patterns through live virtual group coaching, private coaching, video lessons, and breakthrough exercises. Schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast and you'll receive special discounts on her various programs. See you next time on the world's greatest real life love stories.